If you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We'll be in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. It's on page 836 of your blue pew Bibles. If you're taking notes in the sermon guidebook, there's a page for notes on this sermon on page 8. As we prepare ourselves, let's ask for God's help. Dear Lord, we believe that your spirit works through your word, not just to fashion the world, but to bring about the redemption of the world. And we submit to it, Lord, gladly, eagerly, and ask now that as you have done of old, that you would be pleased to speak through your word, to direct our eyes to Jesus, to glorify your son. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the third century, there was a writer who spoke of the ocean flood of Christ. The ocean flood of Christ. By this, he meant that Jesus, Jesus' followers and Jesus' influence was sweeping or washing over the Roman world and very unexpectedly. Well, sometime later, in the 20th century, the historian Yaroslav Pelikan, himself a Christian, he tried to capture something of the, the effect this ocean flood has continued to have on the modern world. And in his book, Jesus Through the Centuries, he opens with these memorable words. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse, and it is in his name that millions pray. More recently, writing in the 21st century, another historian, Tom Holland, himself not a Christian, reckons with Jesus' lasting influence on the modern world's moral assumptions that we, that we value every human being, that we assume that the strong should help the weak, that we think equality is some sort of obvious, non-negotiable virtue that just jumps out of the natural world. And he probes these things in his book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, Searching for Their Roots. And here's what he writes. To live in a Western country is to live in a society still utterly saturated by Christian concepts and assumptions. Assumptions that I had grown up with about how a society should properly organize and the principles that it should uphold, Holland found, were, were not bred of classical antiquity. They didn't come out of the Roman and Greek world. Still less did they come out of human nature. 
But very distinctively, they came out of that civilization's Christian past. So the honest historian must conclude the world that we presently live in with its moral assumptions and inclinations about the worth of human beings, it flows from a spring in Nazareth of Galilee. What I want to do this fall is I want to return to that spring. I want to go back to the source of this ocean flood of Christ that has not just, not just impacted the world, but in, a, in deep ways made the world. And to do that, to go back to this source, we're going to travel back to the earliest account of Jesus' life, which is the Gospel of Mark. Most scholars agree that Mark was the first gospel written sometime in the 50s, A.D. 50s. And it was written before Matthew, Luke, and John. Those other gospels are aware of Mark. They reflect on Mark. But Mark's was written first. And it's a very personal gospel. It, it is based on the living witness and testimony of St. Peter. So early church fathers taught us that, that, listen, that Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord. That was Bishop Papias, who lived from 60 to 130 AD, writing about this gospel. He said Mark became Peter's interpreter. So when you read the 16 chapters of Mark, you're hearing the voice of Peter who was one of the closest disciples. Now, who's this guy, John Mark? Well, John Mark, well, Mark is the John Mark from the Bible. We meet him all across the New Testament. Have you heard of Barnabas, the son of encouragement? Mark is the John Mark who's Barnabas's cousin. And John Mark's family was at the center of the early Christian movement, involved deeply in the events that are recorded in Acts. When Peter is sprung from prison in the middle of Acts, and he goes to someone's home at night, it is to the home of John Mark's mom. So the writer of Mark, John Mark, his mother had a home that was a hub for early Christians. John Mark had a cousin, Barnabas, who was wealthy enough to sell a field to help support the church. And John Mark, he, he becomes a companion of Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. The two have a falling out. They later reconcile. And when Paul is in prison at the end of his life, he asks for Mark to come to him. So when we read Mark's gospel, we're not just getting the... the, the, the the eyewitness testimony of Peter, we're, we're reading it through the hand, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of a man whose very family was at the center of all these events. In other words, this isn't a fairy tale. This is really good history, done very, very carefully according to the methods and techniques of the first century. And it's inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we can see Jesus. Now, Mark's gospel is also very cosmopolitan. It's written for the whole world. Mark's writing in Rome, not a backwater, in the 50s, probably just before Peter was killed, you know, before Peter was executed. They wanted to get, they wanted to write down what he had learned from Jesus. And so Mark's gospel is written for a, a Latin-speaking Roman audience, a Greek-speaking Greek audience, and an Aramaic and Hebrew-speaking Jewish audience. It's written for the world. And it has two related 
dominant themes. Theme one, Jesus is king and the cross was no mistake or embarrassment. Mark wants you to know that Jesus is Lord and rather than making the mistake of thinking that this whole crucifixion thing proved that he wasn't king, Mark's gospel is an apology for Jesus' enthronement on a cross. And so Mark tells us about a king who comes to save his people by a radical act of service. So he says in a wonderful verse on the back of your sermon guide in Mark 10, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the story of the servant king. But Mark also wants to emphasize the identity, not just of the king, but of his followers. He's concerned with discipleship. And he wants us to know that those who follow the king will look like him. They too will take up their cross. They too will lead in gospel work by serving. Hence the title of our series, The Servant King and the King's Servants. So where should we begin if we want to learn from Mark about Jesus? Should we just jump in at one of our favorite verses or jump in at one of our favorite scenes or maybe jump in at the cross? Where should we begin? Well, this is not exactly very profound, but we should just begin where Mark does at the beginning. And this is exactly what he says in verse 1. This is how he opens his gospel. It's with something of a title, a bit of a summary that draws us right to the central point. Verse 1, chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's setting the stage. This is a gospel, meaning it's good news. It's about a single person, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. This is going to be a king. Messiah means anointed one. But he's not just any old king. He's the Son of God. Mark's already nodding towards his divinity. Now with this word, the beginning, the beginning of the gospel, Mark is also telling us that the gospel is something that has a beginning, an ongoing middle, and an ultimate goal or end. And what he does in the first 13 verses is actually drop us back from present day events. You'll see this where he immediately starts to quote prophets. And he essentially says, look, the gospel has a beginning. And if you're going to understand it, you need to understand how it began, what comes first. You know, C.S. Lewis um, famously wrote, if you join at 11 o'clock a conversation which began at 8, you will often not see the real bearing of what is being said. And this is what Mark is trying to do. He, Mark's saying, look, when the curtain rises for my gospel, it's scene one, but it's not act one. It's more like scene one of act 20. There's a lot of history that's unfolded, and in order to get the point of Jesus, you need to understand what's been unfolding, what God has been doing in the past through the people of Israel. Now, there's, as we look at this beginning, how the gospel begins today, which will unfold in verses 1 through 13, I want us to notice a particular theme about that beginning, and it's the theme of preparation. You might say the gospel begins with preparation. You can see the word prepare used twice in verses 2 and 3, right? In, in the, the prophets that Mark quotes, they say, the, the, the first in verse 2 says, prepare the way of the Lord. That's he's quoting Malachi. And then he quotes Isaiah where the messenger says, prepare the way of the Lord. So something about how the gospel begins has to do with the preparation. 
Now, this is important to, to recognize the significance of this. You know, sometimes we, we have to understand the beginning of something in order to understand what's happening in the present in such a way that we need information. So if you're going to drop someone into Algebra 2, you've got to give them Algebra 1, right? They need that information. They're like, what was the beginning of all this weird symbolism? Oh, it's math. This is Algebra 1. So they need more information, right? So, so they need to be prepared through information. That's not the main that's not the main point of what we're going to see about how we're prepared for the gospel. You see, sometimes you need to be prepared for something by far more than facts. So, for example, premarital counseling, it prepares people for marriage. But not by giving them some information about what marriage is. Like, hey, it's between two people. And just so you know, you need to go to a church. And you need to get a license from the state. You need to mail it in after you get. Like, they don't need to know that. They already know it. Premarital counseling aims to prepare the heart for the entrance or reception of a completely new reality. Namely, two becoming one. And so... The preparation of the gospel that I want us to see is a preparation of the heart, not just a preparation of the mind. It's the preparing of a heart for the encounter, the receiving of a radical new reality. And therefore, it is not a simple preparation at all. But if we're not prepared, if we're not prepared for the receiving of the gospel, we may be like that soil, that rocky soil where though the seeds are sown, just can't take root. So let me walk us through this text and see how Mark wants us to prepare for the gospel. The passage naturally separates like a piece of meat in a crock pot into three parts. Just falls apart like this. Part one, verses two through three, is the preparation of God. Part two, verses four through eight, is the preparation of John the Baptist. Part three, verses nine through 13, is the preparation of the Son. Preparation of God, the preparation of the Baptist, the preparation of the Son. So let's just start at the top. So after his title sentence, Mark takes the reader back into Israel's prophets. And he highlights in particular Isaiah, who's kind of the big name, but he brings in a quote from Micah, excuse me, Malachi and Isaiah. He writes the following. This is picking up at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You, you, you hear again the preparation theme? So the gospel of Jesus Christ begins long ago in the work that God is doing through the people of Israel and Mark is signaling for us Israel's prophets. They're saying that one day God is going to send help to save his people. Now a striking fact emerges about this person who's going to come to help if we look carefully at this prophecy. And what I wanna point out in this prophecy, I just wanna take a clause of it and point out that there's three actors involved here. And we need to pause to make sure we understand their identity. So just taking a clause, the first clause from verse two, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. There's three people involved in this prophecy. Person one is the sender. 
I send. Now, who do you think that's referring to? It's referring to God. If you just go back to the prophecies in Malachi or Isaiah, it's God speaking through the prophets. So this isn't like Isaiah speaking, saying, all send. No, it's God speaking. So the sender, the first character is God. God says, I am sending. Okay, there's a second person. My messenger. God is sending my messenger. Now, who's the messenger? The messenger turns out to be John the Baptist. This is kind of the aha moment of verse 4. John appeared. Notice the language that Mark uses. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness. And the verse before that tells us God's going to send a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Verse 3. So the messenger God sends is John the Baptist. Now, back in this clause, in verse 2, there's a third person. But they're hidden. They're tucked away obliquely behind this personal pronoun, your. He says, I will send, God will send my messenger, John the Baptist, before your face. Well, the your, it can't be referring to John the Baptist. He's the messenger preparing for the the your. Your face is going to prepare your way. Now, who's that? It's Christ. I mean, that's that's an odd, that's a great answer to throw out in church, right? It's Christ. And and in a moment we're going to get there. We're going to get there. And that, that's actually who it is. But, but not so fast. Mark doesn't tell us that right away. What Mark does, so there's debate about this. The Jews had debate about these verses. Who's the your? Some would say, well, this is a great prophet. It's going to be a great priest who comes. You know, it's going to be the teacher of right, righteousness, some great person. Or it's going to be the anointed one, the king. But there is debate. Who is this person that's going to come? And so what Mark does very carefully is underneath this quote from Malachi, where all we get is the pronoun, your way, he brings in a verse from Isaiah that explicitly tells us the identity of the your. And it's shocking. And Mark means it to be so. So, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, this is the messenger who God sent. Notice the preparing the way, it's the same as verse 2, but all of a sudden we get specifics. Preparing the way of who? The Lord. Now, this word Lord, if you go back into the the passage that Mark is playing with from Isaiah, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Prepare the way of God. notice, Notice what's going on here. God is preparing the way for God. Do you see that? Now, a lot of people, even today, will debate and say, you know, the early Christians, they didn't think Jesus was God. You know, I mean, it doesn't, they don't explicitly say it. I mean, show me a place in the Bible where they say, hey, by the way, footnote, Jesus is Yahweh. Mark, right out of the gate, is attaching the identity of the person John the Baptist will baptize and point to and say, this is the guy, this is the one that was to come. I'm preparing before his face. Mark is saying, this is Yahweh. So if if you're, if you're new to Christianity, you're curious about it, maybe you've been around the church your whole life, what, what you just need to feel right away is that this gospel, when it introduces you to Jesus, it's setting before you God. Like, this is God. And from this, we need to draw, like, our first real point of application. The gospel begins by God preparing people for God. And this means something about what your real need is. We could just pause for a second and you could just go through like a Rolodex in your head or a list on your phone, like what are my needs? 
Like, I bet you'd have a list, right? What are my kids' needs? Well, this is saying something about the need beneath your needs. You know, um, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they, they function a bit like a microcosm for humanity at large. So the way a teacher might bring a student up to make an example out of them, say, Sally did a great job with her homework, and I want to tell you about her homework so that you realize you should do your homework too. Israel functions like that. So, so God, humanity falls. They're, they're, they're east of Eden. They're living in sin. God chooses Abraham. He forms a people out of them. He says, you'll be a light to the nations. Through you, the world will understand what people are really like and who God is. But what you begin to find out right away with Israel is that they're profoundly sick. And they tell us that humanity's sick. And the Old Testament is filled with an attempt to apply different medicines or solutions. So the law is applied. Right? So, so maybe if you know the rules, you won't sin. Doesn't work. Religion is applied. Maybe if you have priests who can do sacrifices, you'll get forgiveness and you won't sin. Doesn't work. So leadership is applied. Maybe what you need is a great leader. Judges turn into kings, and that doesn't work. And then finally, maybe if I send moral rebukers, those are prophets, who can point out how bad you are, Maybe then, maybe then, Israel, humanity, you will return to the Lord. And it doesn't work. So that's the suspense hanging over the people of God, which is a suspense hanging over humanity. And so what we might think we need God to prepare us for is him giving us a great leader or good laws or like, New prophets to remind us of how sinful we've been or how terrible our past is. But no, what God is saying, what you need, you need me. No more intermediaries. I am coming. Prepare the way for Yahweh. And so the need that your kids have as you work, you're like, they got to get into a good high school they have to get into a good college. Like, like they, they have to get a good job. Those are needs. But the need they have is for God. And the needs that, that you identify in your life that you're praying for, thinking about, just know, way down underneath them, God is preparing a way to meet your deepest need, which is for a fresh revelation and connection and embrace with him. Okay, so, so the gospel begins like this. God wants to prepare us for the gospel by alerting us to what we really need, lest we look in the wrong medicine cabinet, okay? So he's preparing us for him. How do you prepare for God to enter your life? I mean, think about if an important person is coming to your house for dinner, like there's certain rituals you prepare, right? Or if you're about to start a job, like you prepare for it. How do you prepare for God to come? This is the ministry of John the Baptist. He's preparing people for God. And his ministry unfolds, the preparation of John, this is our second point, from verses four through eight. And you could kind of summarize, like John is preparing the way of the Lord. Like he's, he's preparing a place where God, if you could liken God to like flying in an airplane, where God can land. So what's his landing strip? You'll see, I'll show you. His landing strip is your heart. Preparation for God is done in the human heart. Um, Charles Dickens um, wrote a lot of novels. And he, he said that his favorite was David Copperfield. 
It's the most autobiographical. And it's a wonderful story. It's a story really of a young man's maturing, a young man growing up. And it follows Copperfield through early marriage, through the, the, the early death of his wife, through wandering and journeying all around the world at one point, and finally through coming back to his roots and reconnecting with a lifelong childhood friend, Agnes, and finally finding peace and contentment. And there's a phrase that Copperfield uses often in the story that puts really, really it's putting the finger on the main thread. And it's when that David Copperfield often pauses in reflection and speaks of his undisciplined heart. He looks back on his past, the things he's done, and he just says, my undisciplined heart. And at one point he speaks, he says, I cannot so completely penetrate the mystery of my own heart. Now, Dickens is deeply influenced by scripture. And he's, he's pointing to a malady that the Bible knows. The Bible refers to it as hardness of heart, blindness of heart, waywardness or rebelliousness of heart. And it is the particularly complex and completely devastating reality of our sin nature that our hearts are deformed. And our hearts, I mean, we depend on them for so much. It's like being out of alignment. It's like a car being out of alignment. So John the Baptist's ministry, it aims at one thing, making a way for God to enter into broken and hardened hearts. Now, what is the wedge how do you make a way into a hard heart? He gives us one wedge that he hammers on. The name of the wedge is repentance. You can see it. Verse 4 summarizes his whole ministry. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now repentance is not a new idea for Jews. They, they had ways to repent, fasting, sackcloth, sacrifice, days of penitence. It's not a new idea. But the prophets began to recognize that these external forms of repentance, you know, going to church, kneeling for confession, giving your tithe, they weren't really bringing about a deeper change. So one of the prophets just cries out at one point, like, rend your hearts, not your garments. You see, repentance comes down to both a turning away from wrong behavior to right behavior, kind of an ethical turn, but even more deeply, the turning away from things that you love that aren't God back to a wholehearted devotion to God. It's fundamentally a relational reality out of which Jesus says produces fruit. Jesus says, bear fruit in accordance with repentance. It leads to a changed life because it's rooted in a changed heart. Now, John introduces this thing called baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism was a new idea. I mean, there was these ritual baths that might happen, but this word baptism, it doesn't come up in the Old Testament. And what it seems to suggest is John is calling for something radical. You need to go out into the wilderness, into the desert, away from everything. You need to confess your sins. And notice all Judea, all Jerusalem goes out there. And you need to be put down under the waters like you're dead. And you need to be brought back. You need a total change of heart. So from John's message, I think we can draw a second point. 
God prepares us for the gospel by telling us we need God. And then he prepares us to receive God by telling us that our biggest problem is ourselves. It's our sin. And until we reckon with that, the gospel just splashes off of our stony heart. You know, this is important because I think some, some people subtly teach today, and some more overtly, that the way you prepare for God to enter your life is by pointing out the sins done against you. Like, Lord, look, look how I've been treated. Look how I've been oppressed. So you're going to come rescue me. Right? Like the world's divided between those who are oppressors and those who are oppressed. And God comes to the oppressed and he judges the oppressors. Now, what's tricky about this is this is partially true. All through the Bible, you see God's heart moved with furious passion towards the least of these who are oppressed. There's just more to the story. Think of Israel as an example. Israel's always falling into oppression by bullies. Egypt, there's slaves in Egypt. Assyria, Babylon, and God comes and he delivers them from her oppressors. There's psalms about this. Oh Lord, we cry out from the shores of Babylon and he delivers them, right? He saves them from the sin of their oppressors. But what does he do next? He carries Israel into the wilderness to deal with what? Not to make fun of the Egyptians. He says, now I've got you where I want you. Okay, Israel, I know they were terrible to you. Let's talk about you. He says, you have a problem that's worse than Pharaoh. And it's inside of you. You know, and this means that when you orient yourself to prepare yourself for God to come into your life, it is totally okay if the way you come to God, if the way he prepares you for him is, is just going through so many hardships in life and you find yourself saying, God, help me. Like, like you've had horrible things happen to you. God cares about that. He comes to save us from these things. It's just that at some point, Subtly, quietly, he's going to walk you into a place where you have to own that part of the problem with the world lies in you. And you have to own that. You know, it's like if you go to the hospital and you have to get surgery and they're going to give you anesthesia. They, they have to find the vein, right? Like they got to find that vein. If you're about to get surgery, you're like, dude, hit the vein. I want that stuff in me. The vein of the gospel, where it enters, is repentance, that's when it really hits. When you're like, oh my goodness, like I know there's like a lot of terrible people in the world and I hope you like condemn them to hell, Lord. I won't say that out loud, but dude, just go do it. But the fact that I can give you my stuff, like if you think to yourself, think, think, what is the worst thing you have ever done? Who will love you there? And that's the place when you lay that out that the gospel comes pulsating into you. God will. I will. I have come to liberate you from that. So God prepares us for God to come. The Baptist, it's like a nurse getting our vein out so the gospel gets into the right place. Finally and thirdly, um, there's the preparation of the son. This is verses 9 through 13. So John the Baptist, he says, one's coming greater than me. Um, he's mightier than I, and I'm not worthy to untie a sandal. And he points, Jesus comes, and, and what happens to Jesus? He appears in verse 9. 
We're told this is Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's from a real town, a little tiny backwater town. And, and two things happen to Jesus. Before Jesus says a word, he speaks first in verse 14. That's where we're next week. Two things are done to him. He's baptized and he's tempted. I don't have time to dig into this because I already have gone a long time, but I just want to briefly tell you that in his baptism, if you read it there in verses 9 through 11, um, you read that the, the, the heavens are torn open, the dove comes down, the spirit, and the father speaks, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. In his baptism, Jesus is prepared for his gospel ministry by feeling his sonship. And what this means for him and what it means for us is beneath all the voices of the world, beneath the cacophony of the voices of men, the voices of violence, the voices of doubt, the voices of confusion, Jesus needs to know that one voice coming from above, the voice of his Father. He needs to know that his Father has chosen him and loves him and has called him. And that orientation, that God orientation, is what saves him from disorientation. And that's what he's come to prepare us for, receiving our sonship or daughtership so that the voice of the Father is the most important voice speaking into our lives. Now, strangely, the heavens are torn open and immediately the Spirit comes down. And then we read in verse 12, you can see it there, immediately this dove, this nice dove, the Holy Spirit, drives Jesus. It's a violent word. It's the same word that's going to be used by Mark for casting out demons. He casts the man into the wilderness. It's like Jesus is already in the wilderness getting baptized, right? That's where John the Baptist is, the wilderness. How can you get in more wilderness? It's even worse. If you look at a map, he's just going way out, further and further away from the Jordan River. And in the wilderness, he has to fight Satan. And the point, the point is this. To be prepared for his ministry, Jesus needs to know two fundamental realities. He has a father in heaven who loves him. He has an enemy on earth who hates him. And if we're naive in our own lives to either of those two realities, we're in trouble. And what Jesus is preparing us for by, by showing us this side of him that he is one with the Father and that he is the one who goes into the wilderness, can face Satan and unlike Adam and Eve, unlike Israel, Jesus is the one who cannot give in to temptation. He's saying, look, you have an enemy that you can't beat. Know that. And it's not flesh and blood. You cannot beat Satan, but I can. And he wants to show you right out of the gate, he is not backing off. And he comes out into the wilderness east of Eden where we all live. And he says, I've come here to fight for you. And he defeats Satan on the cross. And then by his spirit, he fills us to guide us little by little into being disentangled from the wiles and the schemes of the enemy. So we need to wrap up. Don't just rush into the gospel this fall, the good news that Jesus came for you. I mean, that's the point of this story. Jesus came for you. But before that's good news, you need to know what you need most. You need God. And you need to know what it looks like to open to him. You need to bend that knee, cry out, I need help. And this is what's wrong with me. And that just makes that crevice. And that's the place where the son brings in the love of the father and begins to cast out Satan right in the center of a human heart. 
And notice, he does this in the wilderness. The wilderness is the setting of all this. The, use, the word is used four times in these verses. And just know as a parting word that often when God prepares you for God, it happens in a wilderness. He drives you out away from all distractions so you can get in touch with what you really need. And you can come to the end of yourself. He does this with Israel. He does this with prophets. He does this with Christians. And that his son can come find you there when you actually know what it is you're thirsting for. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray now that our hearts would be softened through repentance so that we can receive the balm we need, which is Jesus Christ, Yahweh in the flesh, beyond our understanding, come to pick us up. Amen.